Well, as we approach God's word this morning, please bow with me in a word of prayer. Our Father, your word is holy. There is no other word like it. And so I ask as we come before it this morning that you would help prepare our hearts, that we would not treat it flippantly, that we would have a holy reverence for your word because in it is revealed you and your great plan for us and plan for the world. And so I ask, Lord, that you would please work in each one of our hearts, that we would be submitted to what you have to say. As we just sang, not our will, but yours be done. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I invite you to open your personal copy of God's holy and inspired word to Luke chapter 21. To Luke chapter 21. We've been working through uh, Luke 21, which is known as the Olivet Discourse, in which Jesus speaks about the end times, hence our title for our, this little series in this chapter, The End Times According to Jesus. He's been giving a prophetic view of the future, and as we've been going through this, we've been seeing that we've, we're needing to navigate and to discern whether Jesus is speaking about the distant future, the end times, the very end of the age, or whether he's speaking about the, the near future, as was the case for him and his disciples there in the first century. And to do this, we've had to navigate between both Luke's account here in Luke 21, but also Matthew's account in Matthew 24, Mark's account in Mark 13, and we have, uh, last week, we began to look at Jesus' words about the distant future, what we, uh, the Bible calls the Great Tribulation, and we saw that in verses 8 through 11 in Luke 21, but as today, we come to verse 12, and in verse 12, the scene changes. The scene changes, and I want you to notice this in uh, verse 12. Just the first four words of verse 12, it says, but before all this, but before all this, this is a, is a crucial little phrase because this is a time marker. For anyone trying to interpret and understand Jesus' words in this Olivet Discourse, both here in Luke and the other synoptics, we have to understand the words of sequence and the words of time to try to understand what he's talking about. And this phrase is important. Again, as we, as we uh, saw last week, verses 8 through 11 were the, the beginning of the birth pangs, therefore the, the beginning of the tribulation period. And so he's saying, verse 12, that what he's about to share takes place before that. He's very clear. Now there's some who will interpret the verses we're going to look at this morning, verses 12 through 19, as exactly parallel, talking about the exact same thing as... Matthew 24, verses 9 through 14, because those talk about tribulation and persecution as well. But the sequence words there are very different. You hear about the beginnings of the tribulation, and the next word is then, speaking of what will come after those beginning of the birth pangs. And so therefore, what Matthew 24 describes in verses 9 through 14 take place during the great tribulation period, which is still future and in which the church will not participate. However, the words in Luke 21 occur before that time. And so I believe that Jesus' words here most directly spoke to the disciples in the first century. They were intended for that first century church, but I believe that as Jesus gave these predictions to the disciples, it was meant as a teaching device also for the centuries of Christians that would come after them, so that we might look to their examples, so that we might hear the words of Jesus, and we might be prepared for what is to come. In every age, Christians have been able to read the New Testament and be able to see, number one, Jesus was persecuted. Number two, the disciples were persecuted. And number three, that the church should expect persecution. And that is what Jesus' words in our passage this morning remind us of. In our passage, verses 12 through 19 in Luke 21, Jesus was preparing his disciples for the persecution that they would receive later in their lives. And it's from this instruction that we 
must learn how we might prepare for persecution that might come in our lives. Now, preparing for persecution might seem like a strange topic to bring up in the midst of a series on the end times. Wait a minute, I thought we were talking about future events. Why are we suddenly doing this flashback? Well, apart from the fact that Jesus did the flashback himself, and uh, therefore we are led there by the text and led there by Jesus himself, I believe that it's actually helpful for us to prepare for the coming of Christ by reflecting upon what our lives in the here and now, what our lives between Jesus' first coming and his second coming will be filled with. As we realize that persecution and suffering is the plight of Christians in this world, we long for that final salvation all the more, do we not? Unfortunately, though, many in our nation who are a part of the American church, I would say are unprepared for persecution and suffering. It's been easy, relatively easy to claim the name of Jesus in our country, to say that you attend a church, to get baptized. There's been little to no social consequence. It's not resulted for many in really any social or financial or physical hardships. But of course, we know this hasn't really been the norm for the church through the centuries, nor is it really the norm for the church around the world today. And yet, as American Christians, we can subtly begin to think and hope that we are immune to such threats and attacks. But church, Photo Bible Church, we must not be so naive. We must be sobered by the Word of God and heed to what it tells us. And of course, we can, for those of us living in this nation, living in the West, really, you can incorporate Europe in the West, you can incorporate Australia, New Zealand in the West. We can see the storm clouds on the horizon, can we not? We can see that things are not going to continue on as they always have been. We must be prepared. And we must help prepare our children as well. Because church, if we're not prepared, then here's the sobering reality. If we don't prepare, then we could get knocked out of the race. We could get knocked out. Those who are not ready for persecution may find their faith shrivel in the time of heat. But friends, we don't want that. We want to stay true to Christ to the end, even the bitter end. And we want the next generation, those growing up in our houses, those sitting in Sunday school classrooms right now, to not shrivel when the heat comes. We want them to remain faithful to Christ. And so as a church of all, gener all generations represented here, we must be prepared to stand in the face of suffering and persecution. And Jesus' words here in Luke 21 are a great place for us to start, for us to begin to prepare for this. And so let's begin by reading Jesus' words here in Luke verses 12 through 19. Jesus says, But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends and some of you will, they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. Friends, from this passage, we're going to see six ways that we can prepare for persecution so that we might stand firm whenever it comes. We need to prepare so that we might stand firm whenever it comes. And Jesus' words here give us six ways that we can begin to prepare for it. And so let's begin by looking in verse 12 at the first way that we can prepare, and that is to expect persecution from authorities. 
Expect persecution from authorities. Verse 12, again, as we said, Jesus gives the time words, but before all this, before all those things that will take place in the tribulation, these things are going to happen to you. They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for not my name's sake. Lay their hands on you is a, is a term which means to describe forcible arrest. They're getting you, they're grabbing onto you, and they're not letting you go. Has been translated uh, as seize. They will lay their hands on you and persecute. Persecute means to be pursued or to har be harassed because of one's beliefs. And together, these words that Jesus describes, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, describe a picture where one of the disciples will be uh, have their personal rights and freedoms violated. Their personal harm is done to them. And presumably, we're talking about governors and kings. We're talking about prisons. This is going to mean that, that the beliefs of the disciples are going to go against the laws of the nations. The nation in which they are going to be, be arrested, they're going to lay hands on them, is going to happen because what they do will be outlawed. And so Jesus tells the disciples that they can expect people to arrest them. When they do this, they will be delivered up, it says, uh, verse 12, to synagogues and prisons. And these two designations would, would have flagged for the disciples to recognize that there is both religious authorities and civil authorities. The synagogues, the, the Jewish authorities, those who were the religious leaders of the nation would have, are, are going to persecute the disciples, but also in league with the civil authorities, they will be put in prisons. In other words, the preaching of the disciples, the gospel of Jesus Christ, was going to uh, upset both the Jews and the Romans. And the disciples should expect that. And so Jesus says, then when they're arrested and persecuted, they're going to be brought before, delivered up to kings and governors. Many different kinds of authorities, those in different ranks of power, they're going to be brought before. But I want you to notice the reason why. The end of verse 12. Look at it. Before kings and governors, for my name's sake. This will not be simply because of some personality quirk. This will not be because of any other designation other than that these men are allied with Jesus Christ. Their allegiance is to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus gives them this warning ahead of time. They will do all of this for my name's sake, because of your allegiance to me. Because they hate Jesus, they will take out their hatred upon his disciples. And these predictions were fulfilled in the lives of the apostles and recorded for us in the book of Acts. For example, Acts chapter 4 begins this way, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, and they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Or take Acts chapter 5, verse 17, but the high priest rose up. And all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, be, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. Or Acts chapter 6, verse 12. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. The him here is Stephen. And you can see that they came upon him, they seized him, they brought him before the council. The very prediction that Jesus gave here in Luke 21 in the Olivet Discourse became true and Luke, the very one who is recording Luke 21, records in Acts that that was fulfilled. But it, did it stop in the first century? Were followers of Jesus no longer arrested after the apostles and there that time? No. The annals of church history record countless Millions upon millions of Christians arrested through the centuries. Satan, the great enemy of God, has 
sought to stop the gospel by enticing wicked rulers to stamp out, to try to suppress Christianity, to try to kill and silence Christ's followers. And we know that the same is true today. Countries like North Korea, China, Iran, Christians are regularly arrested and brought before the authorities, the very thing that Jesus talks about here. Now, Jewish persecution, the synagogues, is not as dominant, but there is still great animosity towards true Christians, especially in Israel, by the Jews. The reality is, is all those who don't know Christ have sought to put an end to the gospel. And church, this may very well happen here in America. I'm no prophet. I don't know what the future holds. I don't know how things are going to go down, but the, the current trends don't look promising. Increasingly, the gospel we preach is not welcome in most sectors of our society. Why is this? Fundamentally, it's a moral problem. People do not want Christ to be Lord. They want themselves to be Lord. They want their own preferences, their own agenda, their own desires to reign supreme. This is the, the idolatry of personal autonomy that reigns in our land and in the West. Praise God for personal rights that have come out through the, uh, the forming of our American nation. But that has turned into an idol in which we worship these personal rights, this autonomy, and believe that our rights should reign supreme and they should bow to no one. But friends, Jesus Christ is Lord and he demands that all bow before him. And so we declare that message, that Jesus is Lord and that there is salvation found in no one else other than Jesus. And that is blasphemy to our pluralistic age. They don't want to submit to Jesus they don't want to hear he's the only way, and they certainly don't want to obey what he says, especially as it, as it places demands upon their lives. And in our age, the battlefront is in the area of gender and sexuality. We need to be reminded of what Jesus said in John 15 to the disciples. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would have loved you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Jesus said that persecution would come for his name's sake. And friends, let's, let's be reminded, we're not the issue. Jesus is the issue. He is the lightning rod. He is the great divide. Either you follow him or you don't. Either you accept him or you don't. He is the one that Satan opposes. He can't get to Jesus right now, but he can get to his body, the church. And so the church receives the hatred of the world on behalf of Christ. And so therefore, we must expect that it would come, this persecution will come. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, he says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Jesus clearly, uh, Paul here clearly says that, that all who desire to live godly are going to be persecuted while the evil people go on from bad to worse. They're the ones that are going to persecute. It's going to keep getting worse as they continue to persecute. Therefore, the church in every age can expect persecution. Paul and Barnabas, as they were discipling the people that, that they won to Jesus, did they tell them, hey, the Christian life's going to keep getting easier and easier? No, he, they said in Acts 14, 22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. For us to enter that kingdom one day, there are many tribulations that we must pass through in this life. Don't expect anything else. The kingdom will come when Jesus comes to reign. Jesus 
First says then here in Luke 21 that we can expect persecutions. The disciples can expect it from authorities and therefore we should not be surprised when we see that come as well. We need to have that on our minds and be ready. But there's a second way we can prepare for opposition and that is to be ready to witness. Verse 13. Look at verse 13 with me, Luke 21. Jesus says, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. This will be your opportunity. They're going to be hauled before authorities because of their allegiance to Christ and now they stand before those authorities, what are they going to do? What are they supposed to do? Jesus makes it clear here in verse 13. This is now your opportunity to bear witness. And what are they giving witness about? Well, they're giving witness about Jesus. They're there because of of his namesake, and so they need to declare and speak about the work of Jesus. They're proclaiming who he is, what he's done, and the demands he makes upon everyone. In other words, friends, the very message that got them arrested in the first place is the very message that they are then to bear witness and to proclaim when they stand before those authorities. They're to uh, rinse and repeat. Let's just say it again. Now, we can be so disappointed at, the, at a detainment of one of God's servants. You can imagine the early church. We read about how the Apostle Peter was imprisoned and the great distress that came on the church and the way they prayed for his release. We think about Christians that are imprisoned around the world that we know of and the distress that is upon the, the immediate family, the immediate church, and the church universal that prays for those who are imprisoned. But we need to recognize that here in Jesus' words that he is preparing opportunities for his people to bear witness to him before the mighty and the powerful of different nations. It's part of God's plan that his people are persecuted and that then his gospel goes forth. The furtherance of the gospel, the bearing witness to Christ happens in the midst of persecution. And so Jesus tells them, listen, you're going to have opportunities to to bear witness to Christ, to bear witness to me. And as we read in the book of Acts, this was an opportunity the disciples did not fail to miss. Acts repeatedly tells us how they turned the the prisoner's dock into a pulpit, ignoring the consequences of what may come. In fact, I want you to see one example of this and turn to the book of Acts chapter 4 with me. This is just emblematic of what the disciples did. The very ones that heard these words on this day when Jesus taught them in Luke 21. How did they bear witness? Acts chapter 4 verse 5 through 12. I read to you earlier the first part of 4 how they were teaching and preaching and the, they had them had the, uh, the, the priests the Sadducees had them arrested and uh, put them in custody and then verse 5 Acts chapter 4 verse 5 says on the next day their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family and when they had set them in the midst they inquired by what power or by what name do you do this then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Do you notice the connection that they make? What do they bear witness to? Yeah, they talk about the miracle that they did in healing a crippled man, but they use that as a platform to bear witness to Jesus Christ and to proclaim his name. This is what we see down through the centuries of Christians that regularly get brought before authorities and they're asked, by what name do you do these things? 
and they say, Jesus. Or they say, how did you become a Christian? And they go, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you my testimony. Do you have opportunity to share, to bear witness, to give testimony? And God empowers them to open their mouths and they share. And so friends, we can be certain that whatever persecution may come, whatever that may look like for you and for me, that there will be opportunities for us to bear witness to Jesus Christ. But as we recognize that these opportunities are coming, it prompts us to ask the question, do we really know Christ? If we are asked to open our mouths, do we know what we are to share? If you're asked today, not in the heat of persecution, but rather in the, maybe in the context of a friendship, what do you believe about Jesus? Do you have a ready answer? Friends, we cannot bear witness to Jesus if we do not know him. That kind of pressure on that day will reveal whether we truly know him as Lord and as Savior. Unfortunately, there are, I believe there are many Americans who call themselves Christians who do not truly know the risen Christ. They have attached themselves to some form of Christianity, some sort of civil religion, but they don't know the gospel. They don't, there's no evidence of the gospel changing their lives. And yet Paul says in Romans chapter one that the, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It is the power of God in our lives. Too many have their faith don't, not resting upon Christ and the gospel, but rather resting upon their experiences, resting upon their allegiance to a church, their allegiance resting upon a pastor or preacher that they follow, or maybe a family member who was devout. But they do not have faith in Christ alone. On that day of persecution, friends, the wheat will be separated from the chaff. The true will be separated from the false. And those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ will stand firm and give witness to who he is. And so I ask, are you ready to bear witness today? Do you have a real and vital relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you know him? If all else is stripped away, if there were great consequences to you standing with Christ, would you say, yes, I stand with him? Friends, if you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ, if you have just kind of attached yourself to Christianity, but you have not trusted and believed in him for your salvation, then today is a day of salvation. You can look to him today and trust and believe in him and find salvation for your soul to know that there is forgiveness for sinners like you and for me. All you need to do is right where you're at to call out to his name to ask him to save you and he will forgive you. But if you have questions about any of this, we'd love to talk to you after the service that you might know today who Jesus is and whether you will spend eternity with him. And so to prepare for persecution, we must expect that it will come and we must be ready to bear witness. But there's a third way that we can prepare based upon Jesus' words if we flip back to Luke 21. And that is that we don't worry about your words. We can prepare by not worrying about our words. And this might seem like counterintuitive. Wait a minute, we're supposed to prepare but don't prepare about what to say? That's exactly what Jesus says. Look at verse 14 and 15. Jesus says, settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Is this, the, is this a contradiction? No. Here's the distinction. We need to ask the big questions. We need to be, be ready and be prepared on the big matters about whether we know Christ or not, whether we're following him, whether we know his word, we need to be pressing in to grow in our knowledge of God, to grow closer in our communion with God. Those fundamental realities of the Christian life. But when it comes to sitting there and fretting and going, okay, if I were to be brought before the police today or if I was brought before an authority today, what exactly would I say? What would be my words? What would, I write? What would, I, what would be my script? Jesus is saying, you don't have to worry about your script. 
Listen, you focus on following me, and when you get in that day, you're going to have the right words. In fact, I'm going to give them to you. He says he promises his disciples, verse 15, a mouth and a wisdom that none of the adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. This promise really is marvelous. We need not miss the reality of what Jesus is saying here. He is proving once again that he is divine, that Jesus Christ is God because he's taking on the prerogative of God alone. Who gives people mouths? Well, it's God the creator, right? Who is the one who gives words and trains mouths? Well, Moses had to learn that, that it was God. He thought he wasn't going to be able to speak very well. And this is what God told him in Exodus chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. He says, who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Friends, Jesus here in Luke 21 is claiming to be the same Yahweh that spoke to Moses there out of the burning bush. He gives the mouth. He gives the words. And even in this verse, we can't see it in the English, but in the Greek, verse 15, the I is emphatic. He says, for I, yes, I will give you a mouth and a wisdom. I alone will give you what you need. Now, how does Jesus answer this? Well, he does it by sending his Holy Spirit. His spirit that after Jesus departed, he sent it as his spirit to go and, 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 and dwell his people and so that they are strengthened to be able to stand and be able to have the right words in the right moment. Jesus had already taught this previously in Luke chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. And he says, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you shall say. Why? For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say saying something very similar to what he's saying in Luke 21, right? When you stand in that moment, the Spirit will give you what you need to say, and so don't be anxious. And the book of Acts clearly shows this promise was true. Jesus fulfilled his promise to his people. He filled them with the Holy Spirit. What we looked at already in Acts chapter 4, before Peter opened his mouth, he said, it says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he gave his answer. And the, 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 those in opposition were silenced. They couldn't say a word. This is some of the record. Again, Luke, who writes Luke 21 and Luke 12 in this case, but then also records in Acts that Jesus fulfilled his promise. Acts 4 verse 14 says, But seeing the man who was healed standing besides them, that's Peter, of John, Peter and John, they, the chief priests, had nothing to say in opposition. They had nothing to say. They were silenced. Or Acts chapter 6, verse 10, speaking of Stephen. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Do you see the, the verbal parallels, the words that are repeated even in this verse, Acts 6, 10, that are found in Luke 21, verse 15? We see the word wisdom. We see the idea of speaking or mouth. And we see withstand, same Greek word. They could not withstand. And Jesus directly said they would not be able to withstand. Jesus fulfilled his promise through and to his disciples. And I believe it's true for every believer since. Wherever believer is needed to stand before authorities and give testimony to Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit has equipped that believer to speak boldly for him. And we've seen this down through church history. Time and again, God equips his saints to stand and to tell of the glories of Christ. And friends, let me just use this as an opportunity to remind us that we need to read church history. We need to read Christian biography of those who came before us that we might be strengthened, that we might be reminded of how they stood for Christ. I'll give you one such example, a story of a widow named Felicity and her seven sons from around AD 164 in the city of Rome. They... Felicity and her sons, seven sons, were faithful to Christ and they were known as evangelists. They were winning many people to Jesus to the great consternation of the Roman authorities and the, the pagan priests. And so they were arrested for their faith and brought before the chief magistrate of Rome under the direction of their emperor. 
And they first try to persuade the matriarch, Felicity, uh, to give up Christ and to sacrifice to the Roman gods and threatened her with torture and death if she didn't. And this was her reply. She says, I am neither moved by your flatteries and entreaties, nor am I in an intimidated by your threats, for I experience in my heart the working of the Holy Spirit, which gives me a living power and prepares me for the conflict of suffering, to endure all that you may lay upon me for the confession of my faith. The magistrate then replied to her, very well, if it seems pleasant to you to die, die alone, but have pity and a mother's compassion for your sons and command them to ransom their own lives, at least by sacrificing to the gods. To this, Felicity replied, your compassion is pure wickedness and your admonition is nothing but cruelty. For if my sons should sacrifice to the gods, they would not ransom their lives, but sell them to the hellish fiend whose slaves in soul and body they would become and would be reserved by him in chains of darkness for everlasting fire. And at that moment, she then turned to her sons and she exhorted them, remain steadfast in the faith and in the confession of Christ. For Christ and his saints are waiting for you. Behold, heaven is open before you. Therefore, fight valiantly for your souls and show that you are faithful in the love of Christ with which he loves you and you him. I'm sure you can expect the ending of this because of their faithful standing for Christ and testifying to his majesty, they were put to death for the sake of his name. And yet we see that Jesus strengthened them by his Holy Spirit to stand firm and to be able to give a witness in that hour of trial. And so friends, we don't need to be thinking through what our script is gonna be if we're ever brought before the authorities. We can trust that God will give us the Holy Spirit to stand in that day, but we need to be preparing that we might know Christ and know his word at a deeper level while we have time. We need to set our hearts, our heads, our hearts, and our hands to living obediently for Jesus Christ. We need to labor to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We need to seek to know Jesus and to run our race looking to him. And if we get these priorities right, then in our hour of trial, the Spirit will give us the right words. And we don't need to be anxious. But let's look at a fourth, a fourth way to prepare for persecution in Luke chapter 21. And that is to count the cost. Count the cost, verses 16 and 17. Jesus goes on here and he lays out three costs in these verses. And the first cost is betrayal. You need to know that there will be betrayal. Verse 16, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends and some of you they will put to death. Jesus tells his disciples that you can expect that those closest to you, those whom you love, will be the very ones who will betray you and turn you over to the authorities. And therefore, they must be willing to undergo this, to continue to stand for Jesus Christ. And this is why Jesus made it clear earlier in Luke chapter 14 in his teaching that, that following Jesus must take precedence over family acceptance. Following Jesus must take priority over family acceptance. Jesus said in Luke 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. But of course, fear of rejection by one's family has been the cause for many to second guess their allegiance to Jesus. But friends, we must see that Jesus is worth it. And he tells them here at the beginning, this is going to come, so set it straight in your heart and mind now. Are you willing to stand for Christ even if your family doesn't? And what's the result? When they turn you over, when they offer you up, they deliver you over? Verse 16, he gives the second cost, and that is for some it will be death. The end of verse 16, some of you, will, they will put to death. Some will not be physically rescued. Some will pay with their lives. And again, the book of Acts describes some of these. Chapter 7, Stephen was stoned. Chapter 12, James was beheaded. In fact, tradition has it 
that all of the apostles, other than John, paid the ultimate price for following Jesus and for preaching his gospel. And again, we could go down through church history with many examples. Reading books such as Fox's Book of Martyrs or The Martyr's Mirror and read story after story of believers who were tortured and slain for their faith. But that's not going to be the fate for everybody. He only says some of you will be put to death. But if death is the fate of everyone, Jesus then turns and says, well, but all of you will experience hatred. Look at verse 17. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. And that's the third cost, betrayal, death, and hatred. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake. Here we have the name of Christ mentioned again. It's because of him that we are hated. Again, let me remind you of Jesus' words that we already referenced before in John 15. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world and I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than it's his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. But all these things they will do to you. Why? On account of my name. Because they did not know him who sent me. Folks, the church is hated because of Jesus Christ. And so what should our response be? Should we be sad and dour? Should we weep? Jesus told us in Luke chapter 6, blessed are you, happy are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Friends, this is so countercultural to our thinking. We think we should, we should rejoice and leap for joy when comfort and ease comes our way, when things are easy for us, when things go better. But Jesus turns everything upside down, and we need to recognize that we're not living for the here and now, we're living for heaven, and a reward is going to be great there. And therefore, we can rejoice that we are worthy to count, be counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Right now, before us, there is no guillotine or gallows. There, we are not being asked to give of our lives this very day. But we must understand that this is what, part of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. This is what it means to take up of a cross daily and follow him. We must count the cost. We count it now so that we are prepared when the heat comes. No Christian can say that they are surprised when persecution comes because Jesus warned us. Paul warned us, warned us. Peter warned us. The Bible gives us plenty of advanced notice. And so I ask you, have you counted the cost? Have you counted the cost of what it means to follow Jesus? When you repent of your sins and confess Jesus as Lord, you are signing away the ownership of your life. It is no longer yours to protect and to preserve it is Christ, and therefore the world and the devil will attack you. And so we need to count the costs. But there's a fifth way we need to prepare, and that is found in verse 18, where Jesus says, but not a hair of your head will perish. And in this, we need to rest in God's promise of protection. How do we prepare? We rest that God will ultimately save and protect every single one who is his. He will not lose one. Now this verse on its surface, the surface, verse 18, might sound contradictory. Some of you will be put to death, but not a hair of your head will perish. Um, how does that work, Jesus? It sounds like there's a lot of hairs on the head that are perishing. And typically this does refer to, to physical uh, sparing of physical death. Uh, you can think of the story that maybe you've uh, heard in Sunday school of Daniel chapter 3 of Radshak, Meshach, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and how they refused to worship the golden image of Nebuchadnezzar. And because of that, they were thrown into the fiery furnace. But it, it says that they then were uh, protected by God, and it's particularly noted that not a, a hair on them was singed. But in this context here in Luke chapter 21, verse 18, it seems to refer to the ultimate protection, not of the physical body, but of the soul. In other words, Jesus is saying this, 
Even though you, some of you, you will be persecuted and some of you will die, you will suffer no real damage or harm. Your soul will be preserved and ultimately your whole self will be resurrected one day. And I think this is supported by the next verse which speaks of saving one's soul. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. The ESV translates it lives. It's actually the word suke, which in the Greek means soul. By it, you will gain, you will save your soul. That's what the context of what Jesus is talking about here. Even though there's death, your soul will be saved. Friends, it's important to realize that God, even though he loves his children, does not protect them from suffering, does not keep them from being killed for their faith. But did he protect them? Every single martyr, he absolutely did. He protected them down to the final minute. He continued to save them absolutely and completely. He took them home. We can see this reality of protection and yet still finding suffering in the Apostle Paul. He's in a Roman prison, Second Timothy chapter 4. He knows he's about to die. He says he's about to be poured out like a drink offering. He knows his death is imminent. And yet he says in Second Timothy 4 verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. How can he say that he's going to be delivered when he knows, when he senses his execution is near? Well, because he knows his salvation is ultimately not found in the protection and salvation of his body, but in of his soul. He'll be rescued and brought safely to heaven. So what does that mean for us? Friends, we need to remember that we too are loved by Christ. We are loved by our Lord. He knows you. He died for you. He will protect you. But let me be clear, this doesn't mean that he's gonna protect you and save you from physical suffering. I can't make that promise. The Bible doesn't make that promise to you. He sometimes, at great consternation to us, at great humbling to us, allows his children to experience great suffering. But in it all, we can know that he is protecting, that he is holding, that he is caring for his own, and he will not allow any of our souls to perish. And if we make it to the end, it's simply because he has held us because he has preserved us. And this is the great doctrine of the perseverance of the saints that we must cling to. We trust Jesus and his unswerving character to hold us safely until the end and to bring us safely into his heavenly kingdom. Jesus will keep us and bring us to the end. But there's one final way we need to prepare for persecution. It's found in verse 19. Jesus says, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. We must persevere to the end. We must persevere to the end. We rest in God's protection, yes. But it is not a process of simply letting go and letting God. This idea that, oh, hands off, all right, God, I'm just kind of on, on your train and you're just kind of taking me there. no. This is the great tension found throughout the scriptures that God is sovereign and he, in terms of our salvation, he is preserving us, he's keeping us. And yet we must strive with everything that we've got. We must persevere. We are responsible to remain faithful. This tension, we, God works, we work. Jesus says, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. Endurance, it's a rich New Testament word. You should do a, a word study on it sometime. It's translated as perseverance, as steadfastness or fortitude. It means to remain steadfast under a trial. Rather than when the pressure comes down, we slip out from underneath it and try to get away, we remain under it and we bear it up. And so we, by our endurance, Jesus says, we'll gain our, as I already indicated, lives, translates the word that I think is better translated, souls. I think this speaks to the fact that even though we lose our lives, in the end, we will gain our souls. They are secure forever in Christ. And so friends, how do we persevere to the end? How do we have this kind of endurance? How do you and I get up tomorrow and remain faithful to Christ? How do we guarantee that we're going to be faithful to Christ in the next 20 years, next 50 years for some of us? It's not by finding strength in ourselves. 
It's not by looking deep down inside. It's by setting our eyes on Jesus Christ. And for that, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 12 and we'll finish with this. Hebrews chapter 12. 12 verses 1 and 2. Familiar verses to us. But the theme of endurance and running a race is key. The author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance, same word, the race that is set before us. Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Friends, we are called here to run our race with endurance. We are not to give up. We're not to give in. For some of us, the race may include great persecution. For others, it may not include much at all. But whatever kind of race God has chosen for us, we must look to Jesus as we run. We look to him because he has gone before us, because he has paved the way. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. He endured the cross and all the tortures and terrors accompanying it. He despised the shame, not considering it to be important. He cast it aside. The shame did not stop him. Even though he was innocent, he bore the shame. And after his death, God raised him from the dead, and he's now seated at the right hand of the throne of God on high. He reigns with the Father in supremacy and majesty. Friends, we don't just look to Jesus as our example. We look to him as our Savior who endured the greatest suffering on our behalf so that we might be able to endure the suffering that we have before us. He, through his Spirit, strengthens us for each step of our race so that we might have endurance through the joys and the sorrows, through the pain and the pleasure. Jesus is with us, helping us to endure to the end. And so church, we need not fear what persecution may come. Jesus has already gone before us. He's our forerunner. We need to only cling to Christ, to trust him and his plan and find the joy and the perseverance that comes through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's easy in our day to become an ostrich, stick our head in the sand. We don't really wanna see what's going on. We just kind of wanna stay with me and Jesus and I don't really wanna know what's going around us. But friends, we must be prudent. We must be prepared. Jesus wanted his disciples to be prepared and he wants us to be prepared as well. And so I pray the Lord would keep us standing firm until he returns or calls us home. Amen? Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you for this word this morning that reminds us to be sober-minded about what is coming. Lord, we do not know what the future holds but we know that you your son has told us that persecution is to be expected and so I pray for us Foothill Bible Church that we would be a church prepared that we'd be a church that is grounded upon the word of God that is resting in Christ our Savior and even though we do not welcome persecution Father we do not fear it because we know you will be with us and you will preserve us I pray for those who are here this morning, Lord, who do not know Christ, that you would please open their eyes, that you would soften stony hearts, that you would enable them to be able to see that in that final day, if they are not with Christ, they have lost it all and will experience your judgment. Lord, may you be merciful to them this morning as you have been to us. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.